Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses uh, 19 to 22, talking about the aftermath of Saul's conversion, probably the most dramatic conversion in the history of the church, and one that uh, started a powerful ministry as a result of God's amazing grace. This is what it says. It's the second half of verse 19. It says this. Now, for several days, he, meaning Saul, was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed, and they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem tried to destroy those who, were called, who called on this name, and who, have come, who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and in confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Ben Shapiro is a conservative political commentator, writer, and lawyer who has a podcast on the Daily Wire website. Over the last several years, he's interviewed a number of people on his program, including several well-known Christian leaders. Uh, his most popular interview was that of John MacArthur, the longtime pastor of Grace Church in California. Now, in introducing the program, Shapiro said that they were going to cover a wide range of topics, including the interplay between religion and politics. And uh, the discussion, are, uh, but as the discussion went on, the focus started to change and uh, turn to the differences between Judaism and Christianity. Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew, asked MacArthur what he thought the key distinguishing factors were between the philosophy of Christianity and the philosophy of Judaism. MacArthur responded by saying this, Well, first of all, I don't like to talk about a philosophy. I'd rather talk about a revelation because it's a divine. So the same God who wrote the Old Testament wrote the New Testament. That's my conviction. The scripture has one author. And I, I need to say this. I'm a Christian, but without the Old Testament, I don't think I could believe the New Testament. And that may sound strange to you, but how do I know if Jesus is the Messiah if I don't have all the predictions in the Old Testament defining him when he shows up? Now, MacArthur went on to quote from Isaiah chapter 53, which shows that uh, Israel would reject her Messiah, who would die as a sacrifice for sins and later be resurrected. He then pointed to Zechariah chapter 12, which speaks of Israel's future conversion at the time of Jesus' return. So MacArthur said that the main difference or disagreement was over the identity of Jesus. I mean, was Jesus the promised Messiah, the Son of God, as he claimed? Or was he a blasphemer? I mean, he cannot be a moral teacher, a great moral teacher, if he lied about his identity. And at the end, MacArthur complimented Ben Shapiro about uh, his, uh, his work and the things that he stood for. But then he turned to Ben and specifically addressed him, saying this, you either believe that Jesus is the Savior or you don't. And that's the distinction. Now, the last time I checked, there was 1.5 million people who've watched that video presentation. More than 9,000 have commented. Many of them remarked on the respectful way that the conversation was carried out and how they wish there were more debates with this kind of tenor. Now, I was thrilled, not only because MacArthur had the opportunity to pre present the gospel clearly to 1.5 million people, but because Ben Shapiro heard the gospel himself as it was laid out clearly before him from a man who conveyed his love not only for Ben personally, but for the Jewish people as a whole. But in another video that I watched with Ben Shapiro, he said that the reason that he doesn't accept Jesus as a Messiah is because, quote, Judaism has no concept of a divine Messiah. Now, that's certainly true. All branches of Judaism, the Reformed, the Orthodox, and the Conservative, deny the Messiah that they're looking for is a divine person. 
But you know, the question is not, does Judaism accept the concept of a divine Messiah? Rather, the question should be, does the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, teach that the Messiah would be divine? Now, last week we answered that question as we looked up a number of passages in the Old Testament which indicate that the Messiah will indeed be divine. As Paul proclaimed in the synagogue in Damascus, Jesus is the Son of God. But then in verse 22, he goes on to, it goes on to state this, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Well, to cement into your mind the affirmation that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah of Israel, we want to consider some of the verses that Paul would have used to set forth to prove that Jesus is the Christ. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy. MacArthur was right that what divides Christianity from Judaism at this core is what we think of Jesus. Is he a blasphemer who claimed to be God? Or is he your son who's revealed you as no one else has? We pray as we open up the word this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us in our hearts and that you'd call people who know these things in their head but have not received them in their hearts yet. We pray that you would do that work even now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make some preliminary comments before we get into the text. And one of the things that's interesting to me is Michael uh, um, Brown is a Christian apologist who was raised Jewish and became converted when he was about 18 years of age. I heard him one time talk and he said that, you know, when he was a kid, he always thought Christ was Jesus' last name. I mean, like John Smith, Jesus Christ. Well, the word Christ, Christos in Greek, simply means anointed. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. So both Christ and Messiah mean the anointed one. And you might recall that Elijah, after he met with God at Mount Horeb, God said to him, go and return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you've arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Aram. You shall also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, over, uh, king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola as the prophet in your place. So anointing was just the act of pouring oil, olive oil, over the head of a person. It was a symbolic way of saying that God had given that person authority. And according to Exodus chapter 30, the priests also were anointed at the start of their ministry. So the three groups of people that were anointed in Israel were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. The second point I want to make, though, is sometimes when it speaks of uh, an anointed one in the Old Testament, it's not referring to the ultimate Messiah, but rather to lesser people being used by God. I mean, reflecting back on their own history, uh, history of their people, uh, and, and God's care for them, the psalmist said in Psalm 105, 12 to 15, he said, When we were just few in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered from nation to nation, from kingdom to kingdom, uh, and to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, messiahs, and do no harm to my prophets. Now, God was talking here about Abraham and his family. You might recall that when Abraham tried to slough off his wife as his sister, uh, Pharaoh took her and into his harem with the intent of marrying her. And God struck the house of Pharaoh for what he had done. And he said, That man's a prophet. So he struck him with illness. Well, or how about Cyrus, the king of Persia? In Isaiah 45, 1, we're told that this is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed, his Messiah, whom, have I, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to undo the weapons uh, belt of, uh, on the waist of kings, to open up doors before him so that the gate cannot be shut. Now, he was a pagan king. There's no evidence he ever knew the Lord, but he's referred to as the Lord's Messiah. 
Well, other times, even when the word Messiah is not specifically used, it is indeed talking about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, who we believe to be Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I mentioned those three offices where people received an anointing, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the Messiah because in himself he combines all three offices. We're going to consider the first two this morning, Jesus as a prophet and Jesus as a priest, and then next week we're going to consider Jesus as the king. So that's your first point, Jesus as a prophet. Now when you think of a prophet, what comes to your mind? Well, probably people who, men and women, there are some women who are prophets, who made predictions about the future. But you know, prophets were more than foretellers, they were also forthtellers. They were those who set forth the message of God uh, for the people. And a prophet was a spokesman for God in Israel. And that's why you find in the prophetic books, they usually open with words similar to what Jeremiah's does when it says in Jeremiah 1.4, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and in Jeremiah's case, it said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. By the way, that speaks to the abortion debate, doesn't it? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before I con uh, you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, Peter, looking back at the prophecies of the Old Testament, says this, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy becomes a matter of one's, uh, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made as an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke for God. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. So the prophets were not religious speculators sharing some insight into life. Rather, they were the persons that God had appointed to communicate his message that they had received from him. Now here's a trivia question for you. Who is the first prophet in the Bible? Moses? No. Abraham? We're told in Genesis 20, verse 7, that Abraham was a prophet, but there's one before him. It was Enoch. Speaking of the false teachers, Jude tells us that it was about these people, these false teachers, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord will come, with many thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they've done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Now it's been said that George Washington was not only our first president, but that he was the model and really set the template for all the presidents that followed. Well, in Israel, Moses was the template for others to follow. Speaking to Moses, Concerning Israel, God made a promise. He said this in Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 19. He said, I will raise up from them a prophet among their countrymen like you, like you, Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them to everything that I have commanded. And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself will require of it. Now, you might think that applies to all the prophets. And in a sense, it does in a general way. But he doesn't say, I will raise up prophets. He says, I will raise up a prophet, one like Moses. Well, here's a question. How is Moses different from all the other prophets? Were before or after him? Remember when Miriam and Aaron got mad at Moses, said, Moses, you're, you're too, taking too much authority on yourself. And God said, Miriam and Aaron, come here. They meet with him in the tent of meeting. He's going to have it out with them. He says this, now hear my words. This is the Lord speaking to him. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. It's not that way with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, that is openly and not using mysterious language. 
He, and he beholds the form of God. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Exodus 12, 6 to 8. And yet later on, after Moses' death, the writer of the book of Deuteronomy looks back on Moses and says this, Since the, that time, no prophet has arisen like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all the servants and all their land and for all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel, Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 11. So no prophet had arisen or has arisen that had the status of Moses who spoke to God face to face and performed mighty miracles in the sight of Israel. And yet God told Moses that such a prophet would arise one who had such authority that anyone who rejected his message would be in big, big trouble with God. Now listen to the words that open up the book of Hebrews. God, after he spoke to our fathers through the prophets in many ways and in many portions in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. When the religious leaders sent a delegate, delegation to John the Baptist to question him as to his identity, he said, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. He said, are you the prophet? Meaning that prophet that Moses predicted would come. And they, he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Tell us so that we might give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make the way of the Lord straight, as Isaiah the prophet said. John 1, 21 to 23. See, the religious leaders thought that the prophet spoken of by Moses was a separate person from the Messiah, but the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the Messiah who is at the same time that ultimate prophet, that spokesman for God. Remember when Jesus told the religious leaders? He said, do not think it's me who will accuse you before my father. The one who will accuse you will be Moses, in whom you put your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 5, 46 to 47. You know, the people who listened to Jesus in his day were stunned, not just by what he said, but the way he said it, how he said it. He would say things like, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. Jesus was putting his words on par and with equal authority as the very law of God, which would make sense if in the last days God has spoken to us through his son. I mean, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 7, 28 to 29. I mean, Jesus went so far as to claim this. He said, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who will judge him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. John 12, 47 to 49. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Nancy Luxem is a professor at the University of Minnesota. She wrote a book entitled Crisis of Authority. The subtitle is Politics, Trust, and Truth-Telling in Freud and Foucault. 
Now, power is the raw exercise of uh, force. But authority is different. Authority is the legitimate use of power. Now, over the last few years, we've seen again and again that those who are in power have abused their authority to such an extent that we have to question whether their authority is legitimate in the first place. Think about the CDC and the FDA and the corruption involved and the money that was made on the pandemic. Or how about the FBI and the CIA, their involvement in elections? Government officials who are supposed to serve the people have deceived the people, control the people, and oppress the people. But you know, it's not just that in politics. It's the same in religion as well. In Jeremiah's day, God complained that an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do in the end? How many people go to church, not because they want to hear the truth of the word of God, but because that's where their friends are, that's where the entertainment's good? They can get a free concert every week. But are they learning who God is through his word and responding to the authority of Jesus? You see, and that's what we need in our lives as well. We need someone who can speak authoritatively to us. Someone we don't have to worry about misinformation or disinformation or lies or deception. Someone who's rightly understood the world and the way it goes. That's what you need in your life, and that's why you need to bring the Word of God into your life constantly, because this is the grid that you use to interpret the things that you see around you. Jesus speaks authoritatively. His words are the standard by which each of us will be judged on the last day. When his disciples were with him on the mountain and he was transfigured before him, a cloud enveloped all of them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. As Messiah, Jesus speaks as the ultimate prophet. But Jesus is also a priest. Now the New Testament book of Hebrews has four chapters that develops the idea that Jesus is the Messiah is a priest who offered up the ultimate sacrifice for sins, that being his own life on the cross. But is the idea of a Messiah as a priest found in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, even if there were no specific passages that say that the Messiah will be a priest, we would still have the idea of sacrifice set all over the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus. I mean, there's the Passover celebration, which recalls God's deliverance from the people of, uh, from Egypt. The death angel would go through the land and strike down the firstborn of any... Every, who's the firstborn in your family? Any of you here? Yeah, you're not going to make it out. <laughs> but well, how is it that they could get the death angel to pass over them? Well, they had to slaughter a lamb and take the blood and smear it on the top and on the side of the doors. And when the, when the death angel saw that, it passed over. Or how about the Day of Atonement? I mean, it was a holy day when they would take two goats and one was slain by the high priest for the sins of the people and blood put on the altar. But the other one, they laid the hands on, and then they would send it out into the wilderness. Well, that second image shows that our sins are removed from us, sent off away from us. Well, all those sacrifices drove home the idea of substitutionary atonement, the idea that an innocent victim can die in the place of the guilty. But there had to have been at least some thoughtful Jews at that time who thought, hold it, how can a, a sheep dying fix my problem? I mean, can you really kill just a, a young goat and that covers David's sin of adultery and the setting up of a murder of a man? Was Uriah's life only worth one sheep? Of course, all those sacrifices were provisional. They were never removed, truly removed sin in the truest sense. And John the Baptist understood that because when he saw Jesus come, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, the idea that a God-man who dies and rises and is, according to the Jewish apologists, well, that's all drawn from pagan mythology. 
Jewish apologists seem to play down or ignore the verses that tell us that the Messiah will not only be a prophet, but he'll also be a priest. But there's two passages in the Old Testament that clearly teach that the Messiah would also be a priest. The first one is Psalm 110, if you want to turn there quick. Psalm 110. We looked at this one last week to establish the claim that the Messiah would indeed be God in the flesh. That's a passage that opens up with these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Now, what I pointed out last week, there's two people identified as Lord. In the Hebrew language, the first one is Yahweh, and the second one is Adonai. Now, Jewish scholars say, no, the first one is, is, is speaking of God, but the second one is speaking of David. So what it's saying is, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, King David, sit at my right hand at your feet. The only problem is, is that can't be, because he tells him he's going to rule forever, and he also tells him he's going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So notice that the Messiah who's supposed to sit at the right hand of God and rule forever is also supposed to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. The other passage, Zechariah 6, 11 to 13. We have something acted out in front of the people that's symbolic. The prophet says this, take, a sil take silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jezodak. Uh, Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here's a man, so he's standing as an example. Here's a man whose name is Branch. By the way, the word Branch is a reference to the Messiah. For he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and he will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two offices. Now you know if you know the Old Testament, kings were never supposed to offer up sacrifices. And priests were never supposed to be kings. But this man is symbolic of one who would come, the Messiah, who will be a priest sitting on his throne. So obviously the king, the Messiah, is also a priest. Isaiah 53. Priests offer up blood of animals to appease the wrath of God, but Jesus offered up his own blood as the spotless lamb of God. Isaiah 53, without a doubt, is the chapter that has been used by God to win more Jewish people to the faith than any others. So powerful and clearly does this point to Jesus that Jewish synagogues exclude this from their readings every year. It goes from Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 54, and they just simply skip Isaiah 53. Now, in that passage, it talks about a person who's going to be rejected by the people of Israel, despised and counted as cursed by God. But then it starts in verse 4 saying this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves, meaning the Jewish people, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, pierced, for our iniquities. He was, or he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. By the way, I have to stop there for a second. You know, some people go astray in just terrible ways. They become drunks, alcoholics, they become drug addicts, terrible profligates when it comes to sexual sin, but other people go in very respectable ways. They live what appears to be moral lives, successful, get the praise of men, but the key is it's still their own way, not God's way. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb led to, be to the slaughter and like a sheep who's silent before its shears. Remember when Jesus was tried and he was made all these accusations, 
Pilate was amazed. He said, listen to these accusations. Aren't you going to answer any of them? Jesus remained silent. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, meaning the people who lived in his day, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due? In other words, he's taking their punishment. It says his grave was assigned with wicked men. Remember, they're just going to drop him down at the bottom of the cross like they did most of them. It says, yet with a rich man in his death, because Joseph of Arimathea came forward and said, you can bury him in my tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself, listen to this, a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. By the way, how can you prolong your days if you're going to die? Well, you can if you're resurrected. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. The Messiah would not only be a priest who would offer up the sacrifice, the Messiah would be the sacrifice. Now, this was written 700 years before Jesus in the Jewish scripture. I saw one where a person was presenting this to a Jewish girl on the beach. He said, read this passage. And she read it from the Hebrew. And she handed it back to him and said, you know, I don't, I don't need any of your Christian writings. He said, look at it. This is from the book of Isaiah. This is our book. Because God is just and holy, he must punish sin. The wages of sin is death. The debt must be paid. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment and pay the debt for those who would trust him for salvation. Either by faith you will let his sacrifice be the payment for your sins, or you will pay for all your own sins in hell forever. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can cleanse my heart within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you had your sins washed away? Unless you've turned from your sins, and by the way, from your religion and self-reliance, unless you've turned from your sins to Christ, your guilt remains. Now, a psychologist can help you cope with the guilt. A bartender might help you drown out the feelings. But only Jesus can remove that guilt and remove it forever. Jesus is the Messiah who offered up the perfect sacrifice that allows us to come boldly into the presence of God. As it says in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place, meaning into God's presence by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great High priest, our great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he whose promise is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Jesus is the prophet, the ultimate prophet who speaks for God. Jesus is our high priest who sacrificed himself to reconcile us to God. In fulfilling these offices, he's proved himself to be the Lord's anointed, Israel's Messiah. To him be the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. I'm just going to add, I mean, once again, there's some of you here who don't know the Lord. You know about him, but you don't know him. You haven't asked Jesus to be your Savior yet. What are you holding out for? <laughs> You're not going to get a better deal because there's only one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. You need him as a prophet in your life and you need him as a priest for your sins. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we get the same message in a sense every week. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And then we talk about what that means once we are reconciled and how we're to live to please you. Father and God, we do pray for grace and mercy for all who are going to hear this sermon through the internet, through the radio broadcast, and for the people here today. Lord, we don't want one person here to perish because they did not believe so as to be saved. We pray that you'd open up hearts, you'd break down barriers, you would cause spirits to soften and minds to open that everyone might be saved. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.